you can get very attached to pieces of work and product teams who built it are like, oh, but I built that thing. But if it doesn't serve the higher purpose, if it doesn't serve that core narrative, like you really should murder your darlings in that sense. And I think that, you know, it's sort of speaking to the, the murder your darlings phrase is like powerful because it's like, they're these little things that you love, but actually to, to move forward in the right way, you, you have to kill them. And I think that that's a, that is, that can be very hard for early startups because it's quite an emotional thing. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of People Building Businesses. My name is Jason Lim, and I hope you're all keeping safe and well, and uh, thanks for tuning in. This podcast is produced by YBF Ventures. YBF's mission is to help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. We do all that from our spaces in Melbourne and Sydney, and if you want to find out more, uh, head over to ybfventures.com. Our guest today, super special, and uh, you know we're podcasting from his home today, is uh, Kohler co-founder and COO, Mark Tanner. Kohler creates beautiful and intuitive proposals, sales, and marketing documents. They help customers do that straight from their browser and aim to turn a quote-unquote slow, ugly, dumb process into something that's faster, more beautiful, and more intelligent. It's now used by over 50,000 businesses, including Dropbox, Zero, Qantas, and Deloitte. And they've been all over the news recently after raising $10.8 million in Series A funding from some pretty impressive investors like Airtree Ventures, Skip Capital, and the co-founder of Typeform. I'm keen to chat to Mark about how the company has grown since uh, the founding days back in 2014. So extremely quick growth. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Awesome. So uh, thanks for taking time to podcast from your home. Before we jump into to Puller, I'm keen to learn more about Mark the person. And I think uh, a great way to start is by winding back the clock. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Um, grew up in, in Sydney. So grew up kind of n not too far away from, um, from sort of Bronte Beach or Coogee Beach in Sydney. Um, and look, had a really like lovely childhood. Had, um, you know, I think had a very loving, supporting home. And I think, um, you know, grew up at, at, you know, as far as, as far as sort of, I think on the business side of things, I grew up with a, with a dad who, who went out, was an architect um, and then went out on his own and sort of started his own firm and, and started very small, but built it into something, you know, really quite meaningful. He, they, by the end, they sort of had 60, 70 employees and were very well known in a few areas, a couple of you know, niches as being the best in Australia. Um, and I think sort of, you know, grew up in, in an environment where, you know, again, a lot of my our other family, um, you know, one of my uncles was was an entrepreneur uh, as well. And so there was just like there was a, a degree of, um, I suppose, like a, a privileged degree, to be honest, of having something where you sort of, you know, this sort of a path wasn't totally foreign. That being said, I still, I still, I still think when we, you know, growing up still had no idea what I wanted to do. But, but yeah, had a really lovely childhood, you know, living in, in, in the glory that is Sydney. Yeah, so growing up around all these entrepreneurs, uh, you know, going back to what you said, like you, you never saw yourself as an entrepreneur, but did you always have an idea of what you wanted to do when you when you grew up at some point? No, not really. Like okay. I, <laughs> I, I, um, I knew, 
I sort of knew that I wanted to be, I had this idea that I sort of wanted to be a businessman, but I didn't really know like sort of what, because I think when you grow up, like there was, at least for me, there were these sort of generic buckets of like lawyer, didn't want to be that, doctor, didn't want to be that, banker, didn't really want to be that. Like I sort of didn't really, like this, this, this sort of broad generic ones, I didn't really know what I wanted. And that sort of carried forth to uni. Like I went and did an arts degree because I was really excited about like doing that. And sort of, I love, I'm a huge sort of history and into politics and, and languages. And so like, I really enjoyed that. But from that, I, I sort of, to be honest, my path out of that, like I interned at a consulting company during uni and that was partially like, cool, I will learn what I don't like by like working in a bunch of different industries and figuring out, you know, which paths you know, aren't right for me, um, which is sort of a weird, I think a lot of people go into consulting again, because they sort of haven't, don't really know what they want. Um, but I think luckily for me, I sort of stumbled into it, um, you know, after finishing uni, my, my uncle who was entrepreneurial, as I said before, like he was involved in this venture and that, that sort of started me down, a, down my own path. But again, that was sort of lucky and by chance, like, I would even say, I mean, and I didn't graduate that long ago, but, but I, I graduated from uni in, um, sorry, from high school rather in 2003. Tech wasn't really a thing. Like, I, do you know what I mean? Like it, was, yeah. it wasn't like there wasn't a big scene in Australia that was like, I wasn't, I never thought to myself, I'll work for a software company. So um, I'm obviously incredibly glad that I did um, and have worked for a bunch of different software companies now. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really have this, have any sort of clear path in my head, to be honest. And this uh, consulting firm you joined, it was McKinsey, is that right? Yeah, just interned. Just interned, yeah. What was the process like getting into that? Because anyone who knows consulting firms knows that if you're in McKinsey, you're likely to be an overachiever uh, to some degree. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think the, I think the luckiest, well, so like I had the same opinion, to be honest. And so I went in, so they had a program where they did, um, they took one, in, one intern from like Melbourne Uni and one intern from Sydney Uni at the time. Um, and I applied thinking that I had absolutely no, no chance. I was like, there's no, this is com absolutely ludicrous. There's no way I'm getting this, getting this um, thing. But I was like, but this will be like, you know, as you say, like they're, they're known to be excellent. And so I thought this will be a great, just a great experience, like learn what the best level of interviewing is. And sort of, you know, if I, if I can, if I can get, get good at this, even if not good enough to get a job, but good at this, like this will be a useful skill for me to have if I go and interview other places, you know, whether that's a, you know, I mean, I, you know, again, I was sort of thinking about consulting a little bit at that stage, or whether it was like one of the big four or, or Bain or, you know, BCG. And so, um, so I went into it though, just being like, well, I'll just prepare really hard. And they have all, they sort of list all of their questions online. They're sort of like, hey, here, we're gonna ask you about these four areas. And then we're gonna do a, a question, like literally they tell you the four questions they'll ask you, which is half of the interview. And then the other half is a case study. And so, you know, they'll give you a question and you have to go and sort of figure it out and work it through. And so, well, I just made sure I was perfectly prepared for the four questions that were like, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, so I wrote out long form, my answers, I had different answers, you know, so I had two different answers for each of them. And I wrote that long form and I broke it down to bullet points. And I just sort of was like, okay, cool. If I was going to hear the key things I want to hit on each of those. So like I made sure I nailed that part. And then the case studies, I just, 
you I mean like you can do a couple of practice ones online, but really it's just like was going in there and just having fun with it. And to be honest, I, I did, I genuinely had fun with it. They'd get in there and be like describing a situation, which was like a large domestic airline that we worked with recently. <laughs> like, okay, I wonder who that could be. Yeah. Um, they said, describe these interesting problems. And then you just get to like talk about them and try to tease them out and discuss them and figure out what was going on. Um, and look, I honestly went in just to have fun and to be, and there was no, I had no put no pressure on myself. And I think that was in, entirely the magic because I knew some other friends who went in really, really badly wanting it. Um, and so look, I, I think that was a, a weird experience, but, but it was certainly a great one for me. Kind of like pitching to an investor, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's, it's a nice way of framing. I, mean, I think that there is some magic in that the, the thirstier you are, like the more pressure you put on yourself, you know, the harder it is to perform. And I, I think that we certainly think about the investing process as a sales process. And it's, you know, that in a sales funnel, you don't have like a one-to-one -one conversion rate from top of funnel to bottom of funnel, right? Like you have to have a large pipeline come in to be able to get some customers at the end of it. And it's the same with, with pitching for VC, you know, or pitching for, for angel investing or, or whatever. Um, you know, you have to have, I think when we did our seed round or certainly for our series A, we had about 50 people at the top. Wow. Um, and at the end we have, you know, we have one lead investor. It's, it's, it's Airtree. And we had some other, you know, you know, skip capital and they came, others came on board as well. But like, and we had, you know, more than one term sheet, which is obviously very important to have um, on that side for a little bit of leverage, but like, you know, we spoke to like, I think it was like end up being 55 VCs um, for that round. And like, but again, you do that and you kind of have each particular pitch doesn't have as much pressure on it. Like we were pretty nervous pitching to Andreessen and a few other places like that. But like, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, I think you sort of, you get into a rhythm and you sort of, you, you learn your way through it. And I would say there was maybe something kind of similar there. Awesome. So uh, before we, before we jump into Cooler, uh, after you left McKinsey as an intern, you actually uh, worked at two different tech companies, uh, read how you want as their Australian manager, sort of like, I understand it to be kind of like a, a Kindle kind of competitor. Um, and then you became a strategic partner and development manager at, uh, at Google. So uh, how would you encapsulate your time at these two companies before Willard days? Yeah, so, so Read How You Want was, um, it's an ebook ebook um, conversion software company at the time. And so, uh, you know, Kindle had just come out, the iPhone just come out in 2007. And so I joined like in 2008. And basically, every publisher had, you know, PDFs of their book and they were looking to get them into to file formats that would work on these different devices. And at the time there was no, there hadn't been a winner in file formats. Like, so Microsoft had its ebook version, Kindle had one, Blackberry had one. Um, uh, there was a couple of open source ones, um, including EPUB, which basically Kindle's version and EPUB are sort of the two defaults that, that won. Um, but there were like five formats that you would want to convert a book into. Um, and we had this clever, read how you want this clever bit of software that sort of sat in between the file and the, the, the format. So rather than doing a one-to-one -one conversion each time, you would just convert it to this one sort of deeply, you know, XML tagged middleware sort of spot. And then the software would just do all the conversions from there, which was really cool because they were then able to do a bunch of interesting stuff around audio like sorry books into like audiobooks for the blind 
into like versions of Braille. And of course there's many different versions of Braille, which is completely insane, but there are. Um, and then, you know, into large print, uh, like, you know, other sort of interesting formats on that side. So like, even for like dyslexics can order, if you have, if you have, there's, again, there's a huge variety of different types of dyslexia out there. And so you can order books sort of with custom styles to help you with your reading. And, and so anyway, they're playing around with lots of interesting stuff there, but really the ebook conversion part was just like going bonkers. And we could, because of our tech, could charge at a lower rate than everybody else at the time. We had this first year there where we just like, we made so much money and we grew at such an incredibly fast rate and it was tremendously exciting. And then in the second year, it became incredibly clear that the price for this conversion task was going to be driven down to zero um like eventually and, and now yeah. it is it's like there's just like software out there that you just you know, upload a file and it just becomes an epub um uh and yeah like we sort of were like ah okay crap and so the company has pivoted a few times since then but i was lucky enough at that stage that you know we'd become quite quite a well-known little startup especially in the digital publishing space and so i got to a, got invited to speak at a bunch of different conferences and, and events and at one of them I met a guy from Google um, and wonderfully we, we got along really well. And, um, you know, luckily for me, they were, they were sort of starting to look for someone to work, to join their team to, to work on. So the team at, at Google was like a, a, a partnership, like a media partnership team. So it's so product partnerships is the broad group and R1 specialized in media. And then within media, we specialized in, um, you know, so print media. So, academic textbooks, trade publishing, um, newspapers, magazines, etc. like that whole world. And um, Google was gearing up to launch what became the Play Store. Um, so like, you know, having an ebook store on there, having a digital magazine store, eventually a newsstand, as well as like movies, TV, you know, uh, music, etc. Um, and so they were looking for someone to run what was then called Google eBooks in Australia. And so all the work I'd been doing around speaking to Penguin and Random House and Macmillan and all these companies trying to get them to convert their eBooks with us meant that I knew the industry really well. I was sort of, I knew the software well. I knew sort of how eBooks worked. I knew which publishers in the region had been using us and using our competitors. And so who was quite far along the digital journey and who was a bit of a laggard and whatever else. And so it ended up being a very lucky sort of perfect fit for me to sort of slotted that team. And so over the next little while I got to work, I mean, working at Google was fantastic. And I got to work, you know, largely on, I mean, I did some deals for the search team. So around like Google Scholar, Google Book Search, Google News, like sort of stuff around that, which was interesting. Um, especially as like a lot of the book publishers were still suing Google for like their <laughs> Google library project and, and, and various like claims of copyright infringement, which made for interesting negotiations. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a really wonderful time because I mainly got to work on Android. And Android was just exploding. Like the internal charts and numbers each month were just completely insane as to how fast that was growing this was from like 2010 through 2013. And it was just completely insane um, and really exciting and wonderful. And I think just to sort of be part of that, you know, the Google Play Store, I remember, you know, them being like, you know, having this huge audacious goal of doing a billion dollars in revenue through the, through the, 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 the store, like apps and books and everything else. And when I left, they were like, the goal for that year had been 5 billion and they were well on wow. to smashing it. And you're like, it's just, you don't, you don't see, I mean, obviously they take their cut of that. And then there's, you know, deals with telcos and whatever else. So they don't really, you know, the 30% the, the gets divvied up even further. 
but still it's, it was a bonkers business and it was a wonderful you know, experience to be part of on that side. Did you have to adapt to that whole exponential growth mindset? Because someone coming in, you hear a billion dollars and you know, I reckon a lot of people would freak out at, at that number. So like, it was funny because I didn't have, to, I didn't own any revenue. It was just, um, it was just the, the way it sort of worked for me was, Hey, um, we want to launch, um, you, you know, this new version of, of Google play in, um, in New Zealand in four months. Uh, so we need you to sign. We want to have like of the top 100 books that are selling in New Zealand right now. Uh, we want to have 90% of them at launch. Um, so that, you know, we have, we have a good collection on that side. And then we also want to make sure we have, um, you know, another X thousand of, of, of books available so that they'll have like, we'll have our international catalog, we'll have our Australian catalog, but then we've actually got, you know, at least 5,000, I think it was at the time, like 5,000 um, books, uh, you know, New Zealand books that were on there. So we had like good local content as well. And maybe you'd also want to do a deal with like, you know, a local you know, newspaper in New Zealand. So you could like, you know, have their book review sections embedded in there. And again, work on a deal to get like music and TV and movie reviews as well, sort of embedded in the Play Store. And just like, and just, you know, so I didn't have a revenue number on that side that was sort of happened sort of later stage, but like, it was this very fun thing of being like, okay, we've got five months to close a shitload of deals. And uh, that was a challenge. And, you know, the fun thing, the glorious thing about, about this job was like having worked at a startup, doing all these cold calls to like Macmillan and co and trying to get them to do their ebook conversions with us. And we had a great, we had a great product and like real like meaningful product market fit, but we were complete no name. And who was I some 20 something. I remember I grew a beard to try to seem older. Uh, <laughs> so I would at least seem like late twenties um, when I was doing this work. But, um, but with, let me tell you, cold calling from Google is just a gloriously special experience, <laughs> especially in like 2010, 2011, because like every, like it was just endless. Like, which is people like, Oh, let me, let me put you through to the, to the head of rights or to the CEO or to whatever it was, it was amazing. That's awesome. So you've had this amazing time at Google. How did you then come up with the idea for Quiller? What was the, what was the catalyst that really kicked that off? Yeah. So not my idea, which is the wonderful part. So I was very easy for me. Um, my co-founder Dylan um, had the idea. So he had been, the basic story behind Quiller is, is, is Dylan had been running his own sort of agency doing, uh, doing he's a software developer and a, and a designer. And so he'd been doing software developing and design, uh, relatively full stack jobs. And so he'd been working for, you know, by, you know, by that stage, you know, Saatchi and Saatchi and, uh, and Ogilvy and Victorian government and Belvoir theater in Sydney and in other places. And so he had, you know, his big thing though, was he just hated the process of, of building pitch docs and proposals. Cause he, you know, you go do pricing in Excel, you then go to your copy in word, and then you sort of take them both together into InDesign, try to make something looks nice. And then you send it to the client, they want a whole bunch of changes. InDesign sucks. So you have to rip it all apart and then like, you know, report it together again. And so he also was like, you know, what I'm selling is a digital service. Um, so why, why am I pitching in this, you know, fundamentally non-digital like old school format. And so, you know, he then had this, he then started doing what was completely insane, which was in sort of like 2011, 2012, he would 
hand code a website for every single proposal he sent out. Wow. So he would, he would just be like, like, you know, you guys would ask for a proposal and he'd be like, cool. Okay. I'm going to build your website, which, you know, back in those days took like three days, maybe four days to do for every single pitch. Um, now he didn't do many pitches and he won them at an incredibly high rate. And also it was, you know, some of a proof of concept that if you get, if you're, you know, asking someone to do, you know, work for you on your like app and your website and whatever else, and you get given a website as the pitch, it's kind of proves that you can do it to some degree. Um, so he, he started, the first version of Quilla really was like a series of bash scripts and other little tricks that he'd made to sort of make this process faster. And a sort of a watershed moment for him was, you know, he was, um, he spoke to Saatchi in Saatchi, New Zealand in the morning. He sent them a website as a proposal that afternoon. Um, the MD of Saatchi and Saatchi called, called him like immediately, MD of Saatchi, New Zealand, called him immediately being like, how, how, did you do, how did you do this? Like, is this a product? Like, can we use this? Like, this is amazing. And he was like, no way. He'd done a product company before and it'd been a complete nightmare. And he's like, no way. This is like, not, never, I'm not doing this a product. It'd be way too hard. But it like started that idea ticking along. So he ended up building the first basic version that we ended up scrapping because it wasn't, it was kind of a little bit more akin to WordPress rather than a true like WYSIWYG beautiful, simple, easy interface. Um, we built this first version and, 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 and I was at the time, I was working for Google in New York. I was back in Sydney for a wedding. I was looking to come home for various reasons. Um, and, uh, but really looking to, to be involved in the startup. Like I had a wonderful time at Google and I say this to a lot of people in their career, like if you can have a couple of years at a startup early on and a couple of years at a big, excellent company, um, or even like a, a medium, you know, a medium sized company or whatever, I think like, Having a few years in your twenties where you're at now, look, maybe you want to found something early, and that's great too. But like, you know, I think before founding a company, having a little bit of a taste of startup, you know, uh, was great, and having a taste of McKinsey was great, and having a taste of Google, like, I sort of you sort of had different levels of, of excellence. Um, and I think that um, that was that was a really enjoyable experience. But I really wanted to get back into startup land um, quite badly. And so I was sort of back to this wedding, but I was lined up all these meetings, to try to find a way in um, to sort of go on that side and bumped into, as chance happens, bumped into Dylan at the wedding and we got talking and, um, you know, it was very funny. He was like, oh, do you know this, this person? And I was like, oh, I hadn't met him yet, but I was meeting him that week. And he was already trying to match make Dylan and I, and sort of, he actually is an investor who wrote us our first check. Wow. Thank you, Gary at Right Click Capital. <laughs> um, uh, always close to our hearts. but. Um, but yeah, no, we, honestly, I came back and, and Dylan had this fantastic idea. And from my side, it really was to be, someone to be non-technical, to be able to build something that was so beautiful and powerful and intelligent so quickly. And obviously I was a bit lucky because I'd had this background of, you know, when I was at Google in Sydney, there'd been this product called Google Wave, which they'd built. And it was sort of meant to be the future of like communication and collaboration. It didn't really pan out, they got, they got, got killed. Then a lot of that team got put on a Google Docs team and, and actually some of the early, like the real deep collaboration that came on Google Docs was actually the, the, all the tech was from Wave. So if you remember when like users have like colored curses and I could see Jason typing in with yeah, his yeah. orange cursor and I was a purple cursor and you could it's see like the green typing. highlights and yeah, all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that sort of first version around about like 2011 or so um, was all Wave tech, but there was this sort of conversation like, okay, well, 
Wave wasn't the future, but Google Docs is just a Microsoft clone. Like that's not the future either. Like what is the future of this sort of thing? And, and to see what Dylan had built, which is just like allows anyone to build a very lightweight web page. The document is a very lightweight web page incredibly quickly, incredibly easily. It's a very intuitive, simple, you know, drag in an image, click here, type, you know, this sort of nice sort of flow. But once you've done it as a web page, like you get all these amazing benefits from like the web kind of, you know, for free. I mean, I say for free, it's taken hell of a lot of work, <laughs> but like, you know, you get the ability, like you can embed videos, you can embed forms, you can embed calendars, you can embed, you know, maps, you can embed any other sort of content, interactive content. You also can have buttons that do things. So you can be like, you know, hey, here's our, here's our quote, um, you know, gold, silver, bronze package. Oh, I want the silver package, but I don't want this optional extra, but I do want this one. And all of a sudden you have a buying experience that looks for a B2B sales team that looks way more like a, an e-commerce or, or a marketplace sort of experience or a SaaS experience. It's so much nicer. It's so much faster. And then you can sort of, you know, obviously accept e-sign and pay on any, any device anywhere around the world. And so all of this stuff, plus like analytics, integrations, pushing and pulling data from Salesforce or whatever, like HubSpot, which is a huge integration for us. Particularly all of this sort of stuff is possible in a way that, you know, files, you know, Word, PowerPoint, PDF, like they just fundamentally suck on the internet. Like they, they cause more problems that, than they're worth. And I think like, you know, they're only really here because of, you know, this enduring Microsoft monopoly and, and to some degree the Adobe monopoly as well. Um, so I think that you know, when I saw what he built, I was like, this is tremendously exciting. And so when I did finally move back, um, you know, he and I just started working together, I think two or three days a week for free, just seeing what it would feel like. And that felt great. And then we sort of you know, got into it and, and then Gary wrote us a check and we were on our way. Awesome. That's actually a great segue to my next question. You know, a lot of people say, oh, getting into a co-founder relationship is like being to marriage and you got to try it out first. You sound like you and Dylan kind of jumped head in. Uh, how did you know that you two would work well together, especially since you've never met Dylan before at that point? No, no. So, sorry. Let, let me, let me oh, go back right okay. side. So, Dylan and I have been friends, um, had been friendly since we were teenagers. So ah, I, not, gotcha. not, not like super close, but, but like, but we, we, you know, he'd been in, um, yeah, we'd gone to the same house parties. We, we, went, we went to different schools, but like the girls we hung out with were from the same school, if that makes sense. So we would sort of see each other at various parties. Um, and he was like, I actually knew him as, as a musician, like a really talented musician. I went to see his band play a bunch of times during, um, during uni. And, um, you know, again, we weren't close at all, but we, we were friendly and, and I sort of knew who he was. And I thought he was like nice and smart and, and whatever. And a few of my, a few of our friends, like we both had some mutual friends who, who were quite close with each of us. Um, so at this wedding, I'd come back to where I bumped into Dylan and we started talking. Like we already had a history together. Oh, funny to see you here. You know, hey, you know, da, da, da. And then it was this funny sort of serendipity that led us down this path. You know, when I came back, that, all that being said though, when I came back, I still had like, when we started working together, I, I, had, I had two other things I was considering um, pretty seriously. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, we did spend, you know, a few months working together, just working for free, no obligation on his side, no obligation on my side. Um, just really just sort of trying to set it up so that we had like, you know, a degree of, yeah, like a degree of, uh, you know, that, that feel for can this actually work? And I think we were, we were very lucky that we'd had that. I think there was just a level of, 
trust that was easy there because we'd known each other from some degree, but also because there was this like nice social pressure of like, we've got a bunch of mutual friends. So if I was an asshole to him or he was an asshole to me, it would actually have meaningful blowback on our lives, um, which I think helped. And then also just like, I think working together in a no pressure way for a while was, was also good. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing and it is, it is like, a, it is a little bit like a marriage. And I think that, you know, we, like we were pretty, like I was pretty firm early on, you know, about like, I, I don't think 50, 50 splits are good ideas. I think there needs to be someone who's in charge who can make a decision. And like it was Dylan's original idea and he'd done all the work on it and whatever else. So that, that felt pretty clear, like he should be in that position. And I think that that makes sense. And I've never regretted my decision on that part um, at, at all. And I think that, you know, obviously, he takes what I say very, very seriously. And we, we try not to go against each other, but like, you know, and there are areas of business that I own, obviously, that, that I'll take his opinion very, very, very seriously, but it's, it's still my decision on what to go on that side. So I think we've sort of, I think also another part that's been quite nice for us is Dylan is very good at engineering and design. I'm very good at operations and like customer facing stuff. Um, and so I think that there's been a relatively natural split between those, those two areas. Not perfect, of course. There's definitely messy parts in, you know, in the middle. But, um, but that's, that's put us in pretty good stead. Awesome. And uh, can you remember what your first paying customer was like for the two of you? So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I can. I think, um, well, I'm, so I'm 90% sure that our... <laughs> it's not our very first it's, it's one of our first customers it was actually the law firm that helped us incorporate uh, oh. the day. so we were a customer of theirs and no doubt we just paid them five grand so them paying us you know 25 bucks a month wasn't <laughs> wasn't a particularly fair transfer but um i think they if they're not a customer still i think they might still be a customer um and certainly if not they were a customer for many many years a firm out of melbourne called general standards um, Kurt Falkenstein, shout out. Kurt, Kurt. yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, get your company incorporated with Kurt. He's like he's the <laughs> best. He's the best at, at sort of helping out in those early days. And and we 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 I mean, we don't we don't use him anymore, but we used him for years. I mean, truly, is such a great steward from startup, you know, all the way through our seed docs, like all, you know, all like all the way for like really a long time. Like they are a really wonderful firm. Um, so shout out Kurt. Um, but, but yeah, so we, uh, so they, they joined and they started using Quiller and that, that was great. And we had, we had a few others. There's another one, another business um, called Trapdoor, which is a video production company. We had a lot of success with video production companies generally because like being able to embed videos in your quote is like wonderful and meaningful and looks great. Um, called Trapdoor. Um, they were one of our first, you know, definitely our first 50 customers. And they've since launched their own startup called Shootster which is doing awesomely, like they're doing really well and they keep, their account keeps expanding. I think they've still got the old trapdoor business as well. But like that's so that's a wonderful startup that's sort of been this cool thing to see as we sort of, you know, as we're growing, they're also growing. So it's been awesome to have some of those early, early customers stick around. That, that's awesome. And what was your growth strategy at that point uh, as, a, as a young startup who hasn't really made a name for itself yet? How did you get, you know, your customers on board? Yeah. Uh, it's all man like it's just outbound sales like i just would just get in touch with every single human being i thought could be could find quilla useful 
and every single inbound, we had, you know, sort of free product at the time and, you know, very, very, very low barrier to entry. But every single person we could, I would just like email them straight away, you know, try to get on the phone with them straight away, give them the whitest glove onboarding as possible, like try and do custom stuff. Like just, you know, our goal was, you know, we're sort of, he's not perfect on everything at by a long stretch, but I do love a lot of Jason Lempkin's little, little catchphrases. He's sort of a bit of a SaaS guru runs SASTA, but he has um, this lovely thing of like getting 10 unaffiliated, like, you know, people to buy your, your software. Like, who are you? Like, why should they do that? That's, that's, that's crazy. But if you can get 10, you know, you can, you can definitely get 20. If you can get 20, you can definitely get 50. And like, it's sort of like, it's sort of nice sort of simple flow. And we're, to be honest, we're still there. Like we still have like, oh, well, we've got this many thousand. So like, you know, wh why can't we get this next level? And I think, um, you know, the world is huge, but I think in that early days, it was just like, get to 10, then get to 20 and then get to, and once you start getting to like, you know, about 50 to a hundred, you start to think, okay, well, how do we, we automate this a little bit better. How can you go a bit, bit, bit further along here? And, at about a hundred, we started to see people properly really going through and doing self-serve, like kind of no to very low touch started to occur. Something would be like, who's this person who just started paying us? Like, <laughs> I haven't spoken. We had like one other sales rep at the time. Like, have you spoken to him? I haven't spoken yeah. to him. <laughs> like, you know, what's, what's going on? And so, um, you know, that was pretty exciting. But I think in the early days, it really was very heavy on sales. And I'm a big believer in sales because like, man, I heard no a lot. And that's important. Like it's really important to hear no and then to ask why and try to understand and say, and then sort of say, Hey, look, if we could, you know, if we could make improvements on X, Y, Z, you know, would you, would you come on board and offer that still <laughs> no, <laughs> but like, uh, but sometimes it's a yes. And then you sort of, you know, you write that down and you sort of, you know, keep track with them and start trying to stay in touch and, you know, really. And then again, like with your current customers, like, just doing everything you can to give them a truly excellent experience. And, you know, they hopefully will refer you. And I think all that sort of stuff, I think the early stage is like, it's really, really important to do it. And it's also really important for founders to do it because like you need to, the founders need to hear that and need to learn and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, you get your first rep and, you know, you add some crazy hustler onto the team and they do some stuff and that's great. And then, you know, you sort of, you know, it's a whole bloody journey from there on, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that I think that that early phase it has to be very manual. And it has to be very basic. And look, we did some other stuff as well, you know, trying to be clever around marketing. But but um, to be honest, that was a lot of the early driver. Speaking of uh, Jason Lemkin, what's uh, Mark Tanner's number one tip for outbound sales? Mm. Outbound sales in the early days. Yeah. Honestly, it's just, don't try to scale it. Don't think about scale. Don't, you just need to celebrate. You just need to celebrate every small win. You know, it's just like, if you're doing outbound, it's like write every email by hand. Don't put them on a sequence. Um, you know, don't worry about sort of building some perfect sequence. You know, I think this is, this is the very early days. Now, like once you've done it, had some success, like, sure, go look back and figure it out and start, start maybe making some, some basic sequences. But even then the first email, I wouldn't put on my secret straight away. I'd try like one or two emails that are very, very personal first. Um, 
and look, obviously, if you can avoid outbound by, you know, by like getting warm intros from anyone, you know, even the lukewarmest of like, like the mildest, like, you know, almost, <laughs> almost a cool intro, even that's fine. Like, um, or sort of doing an inferred intro of like, hey, we both know so-and-so, even though it's not an intro. Um, but I think like, you know, we spent a, I spent a heap of time just doing that basic stuff. And I think that, you know, everyone kind of can tell when they're on a sequence these days and kind of, you know, often kind of hate it. And I think just, you know, having those milestones of like, I'm just going to, my goal is to get a reply. And then like, when you get a reply, like you celebrate. Okay, now my, my goal is to get a, you know, get a call or book a demo really. And then like, and like we would, I would drive out. So Trapdoor, who, you know, early customer, like I like drove for like, I don't know, 40 minutes to go and see them Wow, <laughs> the demo in person. And then like, you know, drove back because like, what else am I doing that day? Like, it's also so like, you know, it matters to like spend time with those people. And I think that not, I think a lot of people just, there's endless rabbit holes you can go down of like trying to perfect things. Just write the email and just like, and just send it off and then find another person who, you know what? I think this looks like a perfect fit for this company. Write them an email, send it off. Um, and like, I think the other side of this is like, if you're going to go and do a sale on this side, so some companies will, in the early days and we made this mistake too. So, you know, but in the early days, I think sometimes it can be like, Oh, you know, you can use it for free. No, nah, don't do that. That's not, that's not interesting. Make them pay. It doesn't have to be much. It can be like 10 bucks a month or 25 or whatever, but it's like, it's so much more valuable if they're paying something for it and maybe you discount it or whatever, but like, or you, you know, you say like we'll be very generous on refunds or blah, blah, blah. But like, once people pay for things that their commitment to the product is so much more, and I do think that like, there are, look, there are companies out there that are canvas the when it comes to mind, that are explicitly designed for free initially. And they have a whole strategy around that. And like that, that's can make total sense. But I do think there is real magic in like making people pay and like learning from what it takes to have them pay and, um, and hearing no, because once you ask for the money, like it's, everyone will say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll use that for free, but it doesn't really mean anything. Like it's, it's sort of, I'd say like, yeah so don't try to scale too early and, and, and do charge that's some uh that, that's a bunch of gold nuggets in there for the listeners so don't scale uh don't be afraid of no and make customers pay uh, yeah. awesome Th thanks that's great advice uh so moving on to your fundraising for for cooler you've now raised uh three times uh the first one you mentioned a uh, seed investment from sydney seed fund from from gary uh, you've also raised 1.5 mil in 2017 from Point Nine Capital, and subsequently the 10.8 million Series A from Airtree, Skip Capital, etc. Could you share with us some learnings from those three experiences, and how different was it raising those three very different rounds? Yep. So there's been more than three. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> <But> okay. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, it's just you know, there's some, some, some get put in the press and some don't. Um, but look, you know, I think the Look, the first one was honestly, Gary had known Dylan and had been advising him. I'd been introduced to Gary um, at Sydney Seed Fund and, and as a sort of, you know, someone who I should speak to to find out, you know, who was interesting in the Sydney scene that I should think about, you know, working with. And, um, you know, Gary had been trying to match make Dylan and I before he'd met me. So once we sort of started our business, you know, Gary came along and, you know, Sydney Seed Fund's whole model was there's going to be a wave of new interesting companies coming out of Sydney. They raised a $3 million fund, which was going to write 30, 100K checks. We were one of those 100K checks. 
the process was basically he came to Dylan's house while we were working out of his had his lounge room and was like, oh, I'd like to write it, you know, like to write you guys a check. And we were like, okay. <laughs> so it wasn't, wow. I mean, we had to go to go through a process after that and whatever else, but like, you know, it wasn't too hardcore. Um, look, we, we raised an angel round, which about half a mil, which, which was, I think very hard to a pretty inexperienced and, and we, you know, you're going to do a lot of pitch events and it was like, was that really useful or not? And a lot of them weren't. And, there were some sharks out there who were pretty gross. And I think that that, that whole scene's gotten a lot better since where it was in 2014. Um, and then, um, but, but I would say that I'd say like the, the, the well, look, no, I'll, I'll go to the angel round. I think there were some real learnings in the angel round. So like the angel round, again, it's a sales process. Like I think it's a useful framework to think about it. And you need to have, you know, you need to have, you know, whether it's 20 people at the top of funnel, 40, 50, 100, you'll read stories. People, you know, in the US, these insane founders who are like, I spoke to 400 people to get my company funded. And um, try to avoid that if you can. <laughs> you know, I think I'd be a bit, bit more rational. But I, th I do think like you need to have a real number, like a real volume to go through on that side. And so, you know, how do you build that pipeline? You know, that's an interesting question. So for us, we, um, in Australia at the time, we, we said, you know, we didn't want to go overseas. We're raising a half million dollar round. We, we had no money at that stage. We couldn't go overseas, really. So we were like, okay, I had to find some people locally. There are some obvious people that were easier to find, you know, some, some VC firms and some family offices that were relatively well known. There are a few good spaces, places to speak. So Innovation Bay still runs these dinners, which is really great. So we need to speak at that. Um, shout out to Ian and Faden who, who run that wonderfully. And then... Uh, you know, there are other sort of, you know, there used to be this thing called Carnegie's Den, which was a waste of time, but still fun. <laughs> we got a, we won a, won a fancy bottle of champagne out of it. Um, but like, you know, so I think like there's some level of that sort of stuff, but like really what we, the main thing we did was just like look at other similar companies in Australia, um, either via angel list uh, or just like other sort of, you know, sources who, who'd gotten angel funding or who'd gotten seed funding or had gotten the series A and then you just go and figure out who their investors are. Now, usually you can do that through like press release or Crunchbase or, or AngelList used to have, um, I think it still does, but you can sort of sometimes figure out like, you know, how, you know, what, what companies, who's invested in what companies and whatever else. But you can also just go to ASIC and just like, you know, you have to pay a small fee to find out who the investors are, but it's not like that bad. So if you really want to know who like, you know, I don't know if they're structured this way anymore, but you can just, you know, pay the 19 bucks and see pretty much anybody's investment structure. Um, that's a great so, idea like, I've, I've never thought of that no like you got to pay 19 bucks each time so like it's a yeah. bit of a pain in the ass but like you know you can just go through this thing and build build a pipeline and being like okay well so like for us like we sort of thought that canva was a you know somewhat comparable interesting tool in a sort of similar space so we're like okay well who's invested in canva and so you just you know find that list and then try to reach and see how can i possibly get a warm intro to these people and if not do a cold intro and just sort of go from there and so i don't think anybody from them invested in us but again that was a useful you know uh, sort of group on that side of that because they had a few angels in there um we definitely met with two or three of them um and um and you know i think you you know as you get to know some other founders you sort of ask them about who they'd spoken to and you just build out this list of people to reach out to and then you know it's the goal of okay can you get a meeting with them okay can you get a second meeting with them okay can you you know blah blah, blah get towards a term sheet hopefully and you know it's a pain in the ass finding a lead investor for these early rounds but it's gotten, I think, a lot better. Um, but look, to be honest, when we did we did the, the the seed round, it was the same process. You know, build a list. Now, 
you're trying to, you know, we are, we got a one and a half million dollar round there. So, you know, you're trying to build, you're building a bit of a different list. You know, you're sort of saying, Hey, you know, who can we, who can we find on this side? That's, that's, that's really good. Um, that, that can write a million dollar check, you know, as a lead, um, and go from that sort of side. And so that let, let us down a bit of a different path, but again, it's the same core process of, you know, and you have to be kind of creative. It's like, how do you fill your pipeline? And like, there are companies out there that are awesome that are backed by famous VCs. There are companies out there that are awesome who are backed by like angels and family offices and, you know, you know, corporate funds and whatever else. It doesn't matter. Like, to be honest with you, at the end of the day, like, like VCs can add some meaningful value, but like by far the most value the VC adds is like capital. <laughs> you need the capital to grow your business. And that is like, you know, I think, I think, um, look, it's night. Like we've gotten a heap of value out of Airtree 0.9. Um, and to be honest, like, look, right click early days. And there's been a bunch of others who've been very meaningful on our journey. I don't want to diminish that at all, but it's also the biggest, the most important part of it was the capital. So it's like, you know, doesn't, I don't think it really matters how you do that part. And so I think, you know, you just want to put yourself in position to like, to succeed there if you can. Awesome. And how has the uh, dynamic changed with your investor group as you brought on more and more investors? Um, that's a great question. So, I mean, honestly, we've got a really wonderful group of investors. We've been very lucky. And I think also we were quite strict about who we let invest because investors can make your life really shit. But for us, you know, I, I think the, the main thing that we sort of think about on our side is it's really sort of stage dependent. And actually, to be honest, investors should kind of step aside as the company changes in a funny way. Like, you know, uh, there are people who invested us as, as angel investors, you know, X years ago, now that most of them have, in fact, all of them have followed on um, in, in various rounds since then. Uh, but like, you know, it's, we used to spend a hell of a lot of time with our angels like getting advice and getting mentorship and talking through that side. And then we'd spend heaps of time with point nine to sort of getting a lot of advice and whatever else. And to be honest, you know, once point, once we got the series A in from Airtree, you know, point nine is, you know, they sort of, they don't expect to be the big dog anymore. They expect Airtree to be the big dog because, you know, Airtree defers a very large check and like, and, and Airtree wants to play that role. Like they want to step into that role. Now, like if we go down a path and we end up, you know, closing some, you know, huge series B um, or series C from someone else. Again, like, you know, let's, let's sort of, you know, it's not to say that Airtree won't be involved or, or point nine won't be involved, but like there is this sort of, you know, you should be sort of having some level of, of, you know, thing on that side. And I think like, you know, if we were closing a, like, if we were ever so lucky to get huge and you close some, you know, huge series E deal from someone, the kind of company that you are and the kind of needs that you have are going to be more aligned to the person who like funded your series E versus the person who funded your series A because, you know, Airtree's expertise is in like A, B, occasional C. Um, and I'm oh, sorry, seed, seed A, B, I think really is their, is their sort of sweet spot. And like, they're really good at that and they provide heaps of value there. But it's also like, you know, like to pretend that the angel investor who wrote you a hundred K check, who's like, a high net worth individual who's like had a really awesome career, like they can provide a lot of great context and value early on, but 
you know, again, the Series E investor later on is obviously going to have more context about how to think about an IPO, um, you know, or, or, or whatever else, whatever else that sort of that sort of age and stage, whatever challenges you're facing at that, at that stage are. Um, again, like you know, Airtree at a Series A is not necessarily much as they've been involved in heaps of companies that have gone to IPO. Um, you know, you know, again, and maybe maybe if you're IPOing in Australia versus the US, you you know, you'd be like you'd be leaning on them pretty heavily. Um, but if you're IPOing, say, in the US, they'd be like, cool, well, you should talk to your, you know, hypothetical future US investors about that. And so I think that you want to have, you know, I think, you know, investors who are sort of comfortable across that side. And so far, at every stage, as we've brought in new, and look, we've gone to work with some top tier people as well. So like, point nine, know the Airtree guys and think very highly of them. In fact, like, John um, Henderson, who's on our board, like, you know, he and, and Christoph and Louis have all known each other for years. John used to be a VC in the UK. And so like they were like excited to work with John and like, they're like, they know that we're in good hands there. And so yeah, they're like, do you know what I mean? There's, there's a degree of it sort of makes sense. And I think that's the way you want it to be, you know, now, unfortunately that's not the way it is all the time. Hmm. Um, and so I would say, I would really stress to, to everybody out there when you're considering an investor, you know, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, just the no asshole rule is a, it's a, is a, it's, it's a really great and important thing. You know, you want it, you want to be in this relationship for a long time. I hope I'm working with John for the next 10 years. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, or however long, you know, it goes until, you know, Quilla hits whatever stage or whatever, but like, you know, you want to be able to work in this thing for a long time. And I think that it's, it's meaningful that you have a good working relationship on that side. That's a fantastic answer, Mark. Um, I'm conscious of time, so I really want to touch base on, on two more questions. Um, the first one being a quote from yourself in actually 2017. Uh, you said that success is a marriage of excellent engineering and design, plus a murder your darlings mindset. What's a murder your darlings mindset? Yeah, so murder your darlings is a is a is a it's an old phrase and i'm i used to once know who, who coined it um but it's sort of speaking about it's it's sort of speaking in the creative process about um i think often i think i think it's from a, a novelist but you know you would sort of you would, you would write this this beautiful scene or this beautiful bit of writing or whatever else and then you get to this re-edit of the book and that scene kind of you love it and it's great and it's this clever thing and you've got this really smart sentence in there that's a very witty haha but you're like it doesn't make sense in the scheme of the book if we want to have this narrative flow this way it's sort of we need to get rid of it or maybe it's in a, in a screenplay or, or whatever else it's like and there can be these things that you work on that you love that you think are great but actually with a lot of startups I think this is true, like less is more, like get, you know, sort of be very focused on that core pain point and, 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 you know, try to get rid of all the cruft you can to make it as streamlined, as simple um, and as deep as possible. Cause that's where you can find real value, like real long-term deep value. And I think, look, the whole game of SAS is to be long-term greedy. It's a whole, the whole game is to turn people you know, to, to stick around for as long as is humanly possible uh, to get, you know, real lifetime value out of them. And, and I think that really does encourage you to be, you know, 
customer first. And, and you know, if you're doing SaaS right, you should really care about great support, great product improvements, and also about going deep on things. It's not about having, you know, a thousand, you know, very lightweight, crappy integrations. It's about having five deep, excellent ones that are very meaningful for people in that sort of group to, to get a heap of value out of. And so look, there's gonna be a bunch of paths that you go down that you think are awesome ideas at the time. And you build out this thing and you can sort of envisage this great use case and it just doesn't really get used. It doesn't really work. And the more you think about like, actually strategically, where are we going? What matters? In the early days, especially, and look still for us today, like every extra little bit of the app that you have there, every extra little bit of code, costs maintenance time and like costs support docs and, and you know, has the chance to confuse a customer or whatever else. And I say all of this, like we definitely don't do it as much as we should, but like, when you deprecate that or kill it or cut it off or whatever else, it's actually a very important positive thing. And I think, you know, I, I should shout out my co-founder Dylan because he's the one who really pushes this mindset inside Quilla. But like, you know, you can get very attached to pieces of work and product teams who built it are like, oh, but I built that thing. But if it doesn't serve the higher purpose, if it doesn't serve that core narrative, like you really should murder your darlings in that sense. And I think that, you know, it's sort of speaking to the, the murder your darlings phrase is like powerful because it's like, they're these little things that you love, but actually to, to move forward in the right way, you, you have to kill them. And I think that that's a, that is, that can be very hard for early startups because it's quite an emotional thing. I'm sure that's a, that's a lesson that a lot of listeners are going to have to take on board, Mark. So, so thank you for that. And, uh, you know, last question I have for you is what does the future hold for, for Quiller? Yeah, I mean, lots. It's really, it's really exciting to be in documents at the moment. I think that there is a huge, I mean, like there is a huge moment happening right now with this move to remote work. Um, and, and just generally, I think, um, yeah, I, I just think that the, the, the way that the modern document that's coming out of its, its, its shell versus this, this legacy junk that is, that is Word and, and PDF and PowerPoint. The stuff that teams like Notion are doing, Coda, um, Airtable and others around internal collaboration. So how, you know, product and marketing and, and maybe sales, whatever else, are collaborating internally inside a company. It's just fantastic and getting rid of this idea of the A4 piece of paper, which is just such a stupid concept in the modern, the modern web first world. And, and truly embracing and recognizing that, that we are web first and the things that the web enables, that should be brought to everybody and shouldn't be hindered and limited by a bunch of old concepts from, from a file system that was designed before the web existed. Like this is all tech from the eighties. Um, and so, you know, obviously Quilla, like our whole mission is to do that for, for customer facing documents. So how do we make the customer facing, you know, sales, marketing, success, experience even to be honest in hr around you know recruiting and other things like that that sort of that sort of recruiting you know really is a sales process but all of those those external public customer facing documents how do we make that experience um a truly web native and beautiful experience how do we make it like great design how do you sort of bring on board like mobile first how do you how do you make the b2b sales experience which is being this clunky file-based thing for a long time, how do you bring that into something that, that looks more like e-commerce? You know, there's this sort of, you know, 
is this sort of term like e-commerce out there. Like, I think there's this real interesting trend that's happening on that side. And um, look, we're just tremendously excited to be in there. We think we've got the best product in market. We think we're sort of, there's a bunch of technical challenges to make it hard for people to sort of copy us well. And so look, we're just excited to keep investing in that, to keep growing, to keep finding great customers who we can look after really well and like, you know, you know, uh, turn them, you know, help them have an excellent time with Quilla because our whole goal is for them to stick with us for like five, 10 years um, and have a long, meaningful relationship with them and help them grow their business and, and I think really be additive. And I think that, you know, our goal is to, you know, if we can keep doing that and do that well, um, you know, we'll win. And I think, you know, for, for Quilla, we live and die by three principles, which is, you know, undeniable bestness, velocity with valor. So, you know, not move fast and break things, you know, move fast, but, but, but do it with, with, with valor and the clarity through collaboration, because those two things, undeniable bestness and velocity with valor are sometimes feel like they're a bit at odds with each other. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, I think we feel like we've just scratched the surface as what's possible here. You know, if you look at, if you look at what's, what's possible with regards to like, you know, web pages at the top of funnel, like all of the science and all of the art and all the thought that goes into landing pages and how we think about that and the funnel conversion process. And then you look at the bottom of the funnel around proposal docs and other stuff like that. And there's just, no one has any idea about what, what a good proposal looks like. No one has any idea about um, how to optimize that for conversion rates. And, and, and we do, and we're, we're really starting to grow out some more stuff there. I think that there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that exists in other parts of the world, but doesn't exist in documents yet that we're so, so excited to be bringing forward over the next few years. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, busy day to talk to us. Uh, there's just so much insight throughout this podcast that I'm sure the leaders, are, uh, the, the listeners are going to appreciate. So thank you again. And, uh, you know, really excited for what the future holds for Quiller. We'll be watching with interest. Thank you, Jason.